Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. It's episode 56 of the Plant Cunning Podcast, and on today's show, we have the one and only Rosemary Gladstar. Now, Rosemary is the fairy godmother of herbalists in the United States, and if you don't know who she is, then you should look her up. We are extremely thrilled to talk with her about her herbal elders, her mission to bring herbalism back as a people's medicine for the people, to have a herbalist on every street corner, some of her favorite plants, both old and new. We talk a lot about those common medicinal plants that are just so good for so many things like plantain and dandelion. And we also talk about plants that are more new to her and to us, like schizandra and rhodiola. We talk about how to give back to each other and to the plants, and how to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves so that we can help others and be of service to others. Now, if this is your first time listening to the Plant Cutting Podcast, we have 50-odd other episodes that you might want to check out, which are all very interesting, in my opinion. And if you like this podcast and want to support what we do, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash plantcutting. We have a couple different tiers, the basic uh, $4 a month, and then for the 9 and up, we have special content. Um like bonus episodes, uh, so check that out. And also, please like and rate us or all those things that you do with iTunes and reviews and telling your friends. Um, that sort of stuff is always helpful. So thank you, and enjoy the episode. Well, today we are very, very excited to welcome Rosemary Gladstar to the Plant Cunning Podcast. Thank you so, so much, Rosemary, for being here. How are you today? I'm doing beautiful. I mean, it's such a great day, and I'm honored to be with the two of you. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I mean, we're honored. Yeah. yeah. This, is, this, is, this is pretty great. Very Probably exciting. the first uh, herbalist that I heard of in my, you know, Aww. beginning herbal studies. Wow, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we do have a traditional first question, and I am curious um, to hear, how did you come to the plant path? Oh, yeah. Well, I think probably a lot of people have heard this story, but I, you know, I've been in love with plants since I was just a little girl. I grew up on a dairy farm in Northern California, a small dairy farm, just surrounded by nature and plants everywhere. And I was so fortunate to have my Armenian grandmother living very nearby and sometimes with us, both my grandmother and my grandfather. And my grandmother was a plant wise woman, you know, she just in the old way, you know, she just knew plants. And she also, she and my grandfather both were survivors of the Armenian genocide. They actually met on the death march. And she used to tell us when we were children growing up that it was her deep faith in God because she was a very deeply deeply spiritual religious woman and her knowledge of the plants that saved their lives because she could find things to eat and knew how to take care of them when there was nothing around. 
So, yeah. And like, and again, I would say in the old tradition, you know, there's always somebody in the family or, you know, in the community that has that special green blood running through them. And I was just Mm. lucky I had it. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. Have there been certain um, teachers or mentors, you know, other than your grandmother um, who have helped guide you on your path? Yeah, you know, and I and most of them were elders, actually, and that may have been because of my grandmother, or maybe just something inherent in me, but I, I was always attracted to the wisdom of the elders, and, and I was really fortunate that I got to meet a lot of these wise, amazing, fair, some of them fairly well-known herbalists before they passed away, so one of my earliest teachers was Juliette de Berkeley Levy. I quote unquote met her when I was in my very early 20s, maybe 19 or 20, through her books, which were not popular and not widely available at the time. I just stumbled upon them when I was trying to do some research at the local library. And I I fell in love with those books. In truth, I fell into them, you know, and Mm. it wasn't so much what they were saying is how they drew me into what they were saying. I just fell into them. And I wrote to her, I I wrote a really long love letter to her (laughs) and sent it to her publisher, never thinking I would, she would get it or that I would ever hear from her. But she wrote me back and it really, it really impacted me and my path as an herbalist. So Julia and I, and then eventually I went to visit her and spent a lot of time with her. And then um, in the very early 1990s, I brought her to the United States and it was, it was one of the things I always... I'm very proud of myself for because it allowed hundreds of people who had, like me, just been great admirers of her work to meet her at last. And also it gave her the opportunity to see how her work had impacted an entire generation of people. She had no idea. So uh, Juliet was definitely one of them. And then I, when I was a young herbalist, I like several of my friends, I would travel to Norma Myers home. She, she was married to Norma Myers was a Canadian herbalist, just a wild, crazy spirited woman. And she was married to a native elder and they lived on a reservation off the Northern tip of, of British Columbia and um, Vancouver Island. And so she had a, a very marked influence in my life because, because of her, I would say all of these people did because they were such characters and they were just so into following their own truth and the truth of the plants. So wow. yeah, she had a great influence and Adele Dawson, who I met when I, when I moved here and uh, Tasha Tudor, who was another amazing elder woman. I met her when she was in her, well, probably not a whole lot older than I am now, but when you're young, you think when people are in their seventies and eighties that they're really old, but <laughs> she was a, another very remarkable influence in my life as an herbalist. And I also just want to say, I learned from many of my contemporaries as well. You know, I, they, they brought so much brilliance. And I met them when I was in my, my early and mid-20s. People like Christopher Hobbs, who's remained a lifelong friend, and David Hoffman, Cascade Anderson Geller, who was just one of the, our country's leading herbalists, Michael Moore, um, Dr. Tia Rona Lodog, who's still with us, thank God. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, and Rosia Alicorn, you know, I mean, there's just been so many. And uh, of my contemporaries, but it was the elders who really influenced me in the early days of my path. Mm. Um, yeah. 
So as a young herbalist, um, you had an herb shop, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was in Sebastopol, California? Well, the very first evolution of it was in the Guerneville Natural Store, Guerneville Natural Food Store in Guerneville, California. Um, and and then, it, then I moved it to Sebastopol, which was just about uh, 15 or 20 miles away. But the first, um, yeah, the first store was opened up in Guerneville. <laughs> mm. I'm just curious, like, what what was it like, like for you? What was the shop like? And oh. what was that experience like? Yeah, well, it was, you know, just an amazing experience. I learned so much working in that store because I ran it like a clinic, right? And mm. it was the only store available in Northern California, north of San Francisco. There was one herb store in San Francisco run by an amazing elderly couple. But, you know, this, is, this was in 1972, I opened my store. So there really wasn't a lot available. And it might, the first evolution, when I first opened it, it was very small, like it was like a little closet within the natural food store. Mm -hmm. So I always had this tremendous sense of success because it was always crowded. You know, if there were three <laughs> or four people in it, it was a lot of people. Cool. But um, it was a, it became a really very popular store and people traveled from all over the country, really all over California to come to it because we had this remarkable, I had over 300 jars of herbs, which in those days was just, you know, a remarkable collection. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And then I had, you know, the herbs itself were, you know, you'd sell them for 10 cents an ounce and you'd spend two hours with the customer trying to explain, you know, everything about what was going on with them. So you couldn't really make money in those days with just selling the herbs. So I also had, and also I like pretty things, right? So I had really nice cards and I had incense and you know <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a beautiful beautiful space and it became like a community hub for mm -hmm. our entire community and um yeah and as I said it was like a, it was it was really like a my university my college herbal college education because I learned so much from my customers they were my constant teachers of what would work and what didn't work and what approach to take and you know what not to do so yeah i ran the store for 18 years wow. <laughs> and then how did you end up moving to vermont um yeah so you know i had i was running a, a very popular herb school the california school of herbal studies which is still ongoing it's considered the oldest running you know continuously running herb school in the united states and I had my herb store and I was doing, I'd started my travel journeys. I was starting to lead trips and I'd even started my home study course. I'd been a pretty busy young girl, right? Yeah, <laughs> wow. Quite a bit, had a lot of energy and I had a lot of friends and a lot of help. Um, but I was starting to find, find myself restless and um, just a need for a change. I, I, I I feel like my life has been guided. And so long as I say yes to the inner guidance and really listen deeply, even when I'm not sure that I'm what I'm supposed to do, if I just follow that guidance, it's, it's always led me in the path I was meant to go. Not that it's been easy, but yeah. And yeah. I, so I just started feeling that restlessness. Like I planted a lot of seeds. So seeds were really growing. There were lots of people who were, you know, carrying it on there were we you know it had always been my mission I don't know where it came from but was to bring herbalism as a people's medicine back to the people and my early statement I used to say is I want to see an herbalist 
you know, in every community, but it started to be in Sonoma County. There was an herbalist on every corner. <laughs> there were so many people, you know, after we'd been, been training people for like almost 20 years there. Mm-hmm. So, so there was all of that, I think that played into it. And, you know, I was just having some troubles in my personal life. I just needed some fresh air. And when I had been young, I had read the Heldon and Scott Nearing books, right? Like so many people in my generation, I was really impacted and influenced by Helen and Scott Nearing, who were kind of the forerunners of the back to the earth movement and homesteading, you know, the the modern movement towards homesteading, of course. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and they had lived in Vermont. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I also had met a man, I kind of fallen in love with this guy who lived out here. So he invited me to come and live on a mountaintop with him. And I kind of shut my eyes and leaped. (laughs) (laughs) Ended up on a gorgeous mountaintop in a little two-room log cabin hmm. where I spent the next 30-something years. <laughs> Very cool. Wow. Yeah. So it seems like you had a mission to bring herbalism to the people, um, but did, did you have kind of more of a, a, a vision of what you wanted your life to be um, and what you wanted herbalism to be, or d- did you kind of play it by ear and how... <laughs> <laughs> well, like how, how has like looking at it from a young woman and seeing how you like your career and your life and herbalism in America has, has changed, you know, like, w- did like, you imagine that as a young yeah. girl? Like, Oh, heavens. No, yeah. <laughs> that's why I was laughing. Yeah. Uh, Isaac, when you were saying that I was laughing because I mean, I hardly even think past the next year, let alone <laughs> you know, what things are going to look back. I don't, I mean, like all of us, I'm sure there were times when I, would look into the future, but it was never like planning what was going to happen or what I was going to do. It was always more just kind of a creative urge. Like I was running the herb store and people would come in and they would say, oh, we wish we knew about that. They wanted me to teach. And I was, you know, hardly knew anything. I, I was shy and I never, but anyway, I was so into sharing what I knew. So I just started having little classes in my living room, in my house, actually that seated about eight people. And very soon there were more and more people. And so then we started renting facilities and then people wanted more. So I thought, well, we'll just, we'll open a school. I'll invite some of my friends to come and teach. And then it was like, and then people wanted more. And then it was like, oh, we'll do conferences. And so it was more just what what was needed. And then there wasn't people doing it. So it was like, I could step in and do these things, kind of create them. Um, And... So yeah, no, I had no idea. And if, and if I had stopped and looked, I'm not sure I would have done anything any differently, quite honestly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems That's like- good, yeah. Yeah, it seems like it grew in a very organic way. Totally, and, yeah, completely. Yeah. And you know, I wasn't, absolutely, there, was, there were sprouts everywhere, you know, sprouting mm-hmm. up, just like me. We were all just, you know, seed infused and green blood infused and impassioned. And, and it was also new that made it really exciting, right? It wasn't just new to us. It was new. um, Not that herbalism is new. It's the oldest system of healing on the planet, but it had gone so deeply underground. And really, when you look back to the 1960s and the 1970s, there were, there were the indigenous elders um, who still carried the tradition. It wasn't well used in their communities for a variety of horrific reasons, mm-hmm. terrible reasons. And there were ethnic communities, you know, that were using medicine, their, their herbal medicine, because that's what they knew. Right. And trusted. But on the whole, in the United States, 
uh, right after World War II, herbal medicine had effectively been driven underground and was considered antiquated and outdated. So, you know, to be part of that surge was so exciting to us. We, I mean, I don't think we were really knew what we were excited about, but we were excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, same. Yeah. There was like a whole generation that were, it was, didn't exist basically for like Americans and yeah, yeah. white Americans, but it, it was really seems pretty cool to be part of that generation that uh, reached back and brought, brought it forward, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I mean, it had its challenges, you know, like when you, yeah. for one thing, earning a livelihood was very, you know, there was a very small group of people. Um, so when you held events and stuff, you know, you were attracting a particular age group and a particular group of people because, you know, definitely we would say mainstream America had no interest at yeah. all. Um, and the medical institution and the nurses still hadn't awoken to it. Um, and so, you know, when you had an herb store, you were, you were basically donating your time to your community. And that's why I carried all the little cards and stuff, because, you know, you had, so even though it was popular, we're talking about popular among a very small group of people. And, you know, for years and years, I always used to laugh and say, you know, I would always be the least popular party person at any party, because, if I'd say to people I was an herbalist, people would just sort of walk away. Like, oh, <laughs> oh no. Those backies, you know. But I but I always I always proudly stated that, you know, I was a plant lover and an herbalist, and that's what I did, and, and just held my ground about it, you know, and stood my truth. And mm. so so there it it had its it had its challenges for certain. You know, you were um, it wasn't that we were trying to convince the world these plants worked. We were just making them, we wanted them to be available for those people who wanted to use them. Yeah. The other thing that, you know, it's hard to believe, but absolutely, you know, even the term organic was hardly even used or, or fair trade. There was no such word as fair trade. And so even those kinds of concepts, you know, like, you know, the beginning of like, wait a minute, we want to, if we're using this for medicine, this has to be good quality. You know, now you just are taught that in the very beginning, you know, yeah. support your local farmers. I mean, we didn't have any local farmers growing herbs. I think Lonnie was the first organic grower, of, you know, Trout Lake Herb Farm up in Washington. And that wasn't in the 70s. That was more in the 80s. Mark Wheeler started uh, early on, maybe in the late 1970s. But things that just seem normal to people now were not, you know, it was and that's, I think, partly what made it so exciting for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that excitement is still so alive today. It is. It's definitely alive. Yeah. <laughs> well, plants are just so exciting. I mean, to, if you've got the green blood, you know, yeah. they are, they're, they're thrilling. Yeah. Yeah, they are. It's so true. So, I have to say, you know, one of the things I always tell people, I've been an herbalist all my life because I love plants, but I also love love the people who love plants they just mm-hmm. yeah they just seem to be I mean even though they're very diverse <laughs> and they have very different mindsets you know I mean you can get into incredible discussions about that but they have hearts that are enormous and an incredible devotion to the earth maybe not a hundred percent across the board but I would say on the whole they are people who have chosen to help others and chosen to stand up for the planet and, you know, for the plants. And I just love this community with all my heart, actually. Yeah, me too. Just such a miraculous group. Yeah. So speaking of the plants, I'm very curious as someone who's worked with plants for your whole life, are there certain plants that 
come up a lot in your um, experience in your life that you're particularly close or in, you know, tight kinship with? Yeah, it's sometimes a game that herbalists like to play. Like if you were on a plant on a desert yeah. island and you could have one plant, what would it be? And none of us can ever stop at one. But all, <laughs> yeah. of, the, all of the ones that I, I really am the deepest and the closest to are ones I knew when I was young that I learned when I was mm. in my childhood. And they've remained my allies my whole life. Nettle being what I'm so amazed to see nettle become like so popular you know it's like miss cover girl and she was just like a noxious weed right (laughs) i mean not popular at all but nettle has always been my one of my very favorite allies and plantain and dandelion both the leaf and the root and Mm. yarrow Mm. self-heal and you know just those common weedy plants that show up for us they they actually travel with humans they they settle in our communities, they grow close to us, they grow abundantly. Burdock is another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that they still remain, you know, my top 10. <laughs> cool. So the humble, common superstars. Yeah, absolutely. I love those plants. They have a lot to teach us. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, and then I would say, you know, another thing I always love are my culinaries like garlic and thyme and sage oh, yeah. and rosemary. I mean, those are powerful, powerful medicine beans. And they're, you know, they're so powerful, just like those weedy ones I mentioned. These are the ones that show up in everybody's garden and you can actually buy them in the, you know, you can buy them in the culinary section and then in sometimes now even in the grocery checks in a store. So yeah, those plants that know how to weave their fabric into the fabric of our societies are yeah. the most. That makes so much sense. I mean, because there are plants that really like humans and there are also plants that you can't like over harvest as easily, like aren't in, aren't in danger of being expatriated, like mm. ginseng and golden seal and stuff like that. Or they're, and they're also not plants that you have to have to be shipped halfway across the world. You know, they're growing right next to you outside. Oh. All very good points. It's all, those are all great things. Well, it's always interesting to me, you know, when I look at that, say that list of plants that we were just talking about, the weedy species, um, they're really designed for the everyday wellness, everyday illness, first aid situations that people encounter on a fairly regular basis. And using those plants a lot, keep us healthy. Mm -hmm. Whereas some of those ones that you were just mentioning, Isaac, like the golden seal and the ginseng and the cohoshes, but you know, those, those ones that we've identified as being at risk or even endangered in their native habitats, they were not designed for everyday use. You know, they were like those really deep infections or those, uh, you know, really rare chronic imbalances. They, you know, they're not everyday herbs and they weren't supposed to ever be used every day. And yet people just out of, lack of knowledge or disrespect yeah started yeah. using them way too much or just not taking care of themselves maybe it's more about lack of respect for their own health and well-being so they're having mm-hmm. to rely on these plants that really are not available never were actually you know yeah more so than they are now but they were never abundant right there's also i think maybe like a status thing you know like i can i can have all these expensive rare plants you know because <laughs> mm. i have all this money or something like that i don't know that's pretty weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i know <laughs> i've never but, heard that one but wow whoever's thinking that they need to get out of that mindset fast yeah, yeah right um so on the other side of kind of the favorite herb question 
Are there any plants that you've recently formed relationship with, or maybe that you've known forever, but you see in a new light in recent years? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm sort of slow to make friends with plants. I mean, I, you know, to, to bring them into my materia medica, I got to really get to know them. A lot of it is because I want to, I want to really check out their conservation status and stuff. So rhodiola is a good example of that. I was reading all the reports about rhodiola, you know, and studies and research, but I really didn't immediately jump on it when it was like, you know, on the front cover of every herb magazine and every product. And, but slowly over the years, um, I've really come to love it. And it's, I find it such a wonderful adaptogen. It's, uh, it's also, I found that it's really useful for some chronic illness occasionally used. You know, I just, and I love how it grows. You know, you can grow it in Vermont quite easily. And it's actually native here, a variety of rhodiola. It's just that, you know, again, it, it, it's very important where it's coming from because it's a cold weather plant, high altitude, um, and it's a succulent, sort of a smallish plant. But that's another one. That's one I've just really come to love. And spilanthes, I just love spilanthes. I met it about, oh, maybe... 10 or 12 years ago, you know, and slowly have just developed an incredible relationship with it because it, you know, it works somewhat like echinacea, but it's, it's kind of, you know, among people who use it, they call it the psychedelic gumball plant because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. a little flower in your mouth, it looks like a little gumball, right? You put it in your mouth and your mouth explodes, you know, it's just right. like all this color bursting and, you know, you're not prepared for it because it just creates this incredible salivation going on. But it's an amazing immune herb and it's easy to grow and it's fun. You know, you can tease people with it. Just like, oh, try this plant. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you make me try this? (laughs) Exactly. It's just, you know, and it's and it's really fun to grow. I I like that one. And then Susandra, which has a long history and actually has been used for quite a long time in in our materia medicas, particularly by people who study traditional Chinese medicine, but it's so easy to grow in the Northeast. It just is this, it's called magnolia vine. I actually think it grows in California. I just didn't know it well enough to grow it, but it's a very vigorous plant in the Northeast. And it has those gorgeous berries that are so fun. Again, you know, they just pop in your mouth called the five flavored plant because it holds those five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, pungent, and did I say bitter? Sour. Sour. There you go. Yeah, it's very sour. And in Chinese medicine, I love this about it. They say that they consider it the perfect plant because they say every one of those tastes goes to one of your major organ systems. You know, Mm. they see they see the body in such a different way. But it's such a wonderful herb for the immune system, and then also for just as an adaptogen, and it's fun to grow and and easy and makes incredible medicine. In fact, I have this wonderful Cassandra syrup that a good friend just made for me and I have it sitting by my computer. It's just like a little treat after I've worked hard. Oh, yeah. And then there's a group of herbs that I, that, you know, they're common herbs and, but I didn't ever have the need to use them much, but Mm -hmm. because of COVID and, you know, everything going on right now, I've been using them a lot more. So uh, Japanese knotweed is one, which, Mm. you know, I've known of it and have used it in relationship to Lyme, but not as a general like antiviral so I've really been spending a lot of time with it. I use it quite often, like when I go out in the world and stuff. And Sweet Annie is another one, which mm. I have used on my travels when I've traveled in malaria areas, like in Cambodia, Southeast Asia, and down into the Amazon and stuff. But I'm using it right now as an antiviral. So yeah, I think those and uh, yeah. 
what, what's the other one? Sweet, oh, oh, and Andrographis, that was recommended to me by my good friend, Donna Winston. Um, it's really well known and uh, you know, a lot of people use it. I just have never used it very much, but again, she just said it was a good antiviral and for COVID, it's a good herb to have on hand. So I've started using it, you know, like when I'm going out in the world, which I don't do a whole lot, but when I do, I take a little bit of all those herbs and nice. race up my system. And then I come back and I take a little bit more and just kind of keep my system activated. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. I love hearing about yeah. all those plants. Yeah. I really, I really like schizandra too. Oh, yeah. And Sp- spilanthes is one of those plants that like, if someone's skeptical about like herbs, like, and if they work, you know, you just give them a little, a little of that. And they're like, oh, wow, my mouth is numb and it's salivating. It's definitely working. (laughs) Something's working. What I used to tell people is um, when they would say, you know, herbs are not used so much because they're not so strong. And I'd say, well, why don't you just take a little cup of senna? Or how about, (laughs) because senna is such a powerful laxative, right? Or cascara sagrada. Or why don't you try a little few grains of cayenne, which is, you know, a medicinal herb and a culinary and tell me that that plants aren't strong, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. they're just strong and they're they're very powerful and they work you know a lot of them work quickly some work more slowly depending on the plant mm-hmm. but they're you know it's not it's not the same system as allopathic medicine thank goodness you know it's a totally yeah. different system and when i say thank goodness that's not in respect to allopathic medicine but they are two entirely different medical systems so they don't superimpose on each other really well and they're never they never were meant to they are you know, complementary of one another, I would say. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, it seems like herbalism is really good for staying healthy and keeping in balance. And the the nicks and, and scratches and, and things, the common problems, colds and yeah, aches and if you all have sorts of things. Yeah, like there are definitely times where I've gotten, I've had to get antibiotics or I've had to get, um, you know, like surgery or something like that. Like you, you know, it's it's a different different level, different, you know, situation. Yeah, totally. I, I agree with you. you know, herbs are, especially those common weedy plants we were talking to, they are perfect for everyday wellness and health, health and wellness. Um, and I do agree, you know, the allopathic medicine is really our best system for emergency life-threatening situations. Yeah, yeah. But another place that I see herbs work so well is with long-term chronic illness. Mm, um, yeah. You know, like with, for reaching into that foundational level, they may not be so good for symptom control, Mm -hmm. um, but really for the foundational wellness herbs, especially used slowly over a period of time can really help correct long-term imbalances um, much far better than I think allopathic medicine does. So that's, and they can work really well together if you, if you know the herbs that you're using and the, and the medicine that you're taking. So um, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I've definitely seen that too. Um, I think that is super true. So herbs can do so much for us. You know, they're constantly giving to us. And I want to talk about how to have a reciprocal relationship, a right relationship with plants and how you do that personally. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think it's like any kind of relationship. It's never going to work if, if you're not, if there's not a give and take, right? If yeah, not, yeah. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I think about, you know, what we can do for the plants is basically what you do for any good relationship. You nurture them and take care of them. And like, Mm -hmm. they give us so much, you know, um, in the way of medicine, food, clothing, 
beauty, all the air we breathe, right? We couldn't even breathe if we didn't have plants. But, you know, so there's just so much that they give. And what we give back is appreciation, love, good soil, nourishment, places for them to grow, and respectful relationships, you know, like being respectful of that they are here serving us, but we are also here to serve them. And in fact, one of the things I, I always like to point out to people, you know, we, we definitely are living in what can be called, it has been called like the herbal renaissance, you know, a resurgence of interest in natural medicine, natural living for certain, um, you know, uh, uh, a more organic way of living I might share and say, mm -hmm. but, um, and people have often, that it's because you know we were following a system of medicine that as powerful and appropriate as it might be it doesn't address everything and it has some big downfalls which we were we were just talking a little bit more about that a moment ago but the real reason i think so that is good you know like people are drawn into the plant world oftentimes because they're depressed and the plants help them maybe just bringing joy to their spirit when they garden or they've been very sick and the plants have helped them um you know, but really, I think the real reason is because the plants are in danger, you know, right now, um, the skin of the earth is in danger, right? And it's, we have a big part in helping them. So I really think it's like the gardens are in danger. And all of those people who love plants who have that spark in them are being called back to the plant world, because then you'll stand up for them, you you'll be an advocate for the plants. And when you're an advocate for the plant, you're an advocate for the soil. And everything that lives in the soil and, you know, and everything that lives on the soil. So you really become an advocate for life. Mm. Um, so to me, and that, that oh, many, many, many years ago, it's been, I think almost 30 years ago, I, I just had, it was like a dream. I didn't think that it would just came to me like in a vision, like, you know, when I was sleeping at night, um, actually on a piece of property that later became the United Plant Savers Golden Seal Sanctuary out in Ohio. I just was called out of my sleep with this whole vision of, oh, this is why we signed up with the plants because they need our help. Wow. And we are the ones who can do this work because we love them with all our hearts and because they give to us so abundantly. Yeah. Yeah. So, it seems so, like, the, well, yeah, the, work, the work with uh, United Plant Savers seems like one of the ways that we can help them? Well, I always say to everybody who, anybody who uses plants, you need to become a voice for them, you know, because that's where the real, that's where the real task is. And joining United Plant Savers, which was just a little small organization that's totally about being a voice for the plants. And the bigger the voice, the more influence we have. And it has grown to be a nationwide organization um, and also has created a model worldwide for medicinal plant conservation. Of course, we have many, many organizations around the world that um, have been geared to protect plants. You know, usually it's the native plants or the flowers or, you know, the, like the wildflower gardens and stuff. But United Plant Savers was formed to become a voice for those plants that are medicinal. And um, it really has created, a, you know, many people in other countries have created similar organizations now just following the model that we created with United Plant Savers. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to watch it grow in to be such an incredible influence for plant lovers and herbalists. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, I definitely agree. And we're members and I think it's a, it's a, I love the journal, you know, every year. That's, yeah. 
Yeah. And also, you know, we have one of the early tasks that we took on was securing this incredible property. It's over 300 acres. I think it's like 370 or 80 acres and it's in Southeastern Ohio. So Mm -hmm. it's in one of the most plant rich uh, habitats that we have in this country. And what was so amazing about this farm was that it had never been poached. So it was rich already in many of the plants that are considered endangered. It already had incredible stands of golden seal and ginseng, old growth ginseng, you know, black cohosh, blue repens, and it had prairie. Now the prairie had been changed into farmland, but it's also been reestablished as prairies and they do burnings there. Mm. And we just recently, it's pretty exciting, like it's been there now for about 20 something years, but just recently we were able to build um, the Welcome Center, which is an educational center named in honor of Jim and Peggy Duke. Um, So yeah, there's a beautiful teaching center there. There's little cabins that people can stay in. Cool. Part is just the beautiful, beautiful woodlands that surrounds it. Yeah, it's really, and you know, that's really just a, it's an ad, it's a, um, you know, a thing that, that our generation, all of our generation of herbalists have created for future generations of plant lovers. It'll be there for generations, really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I can't, can't wait to visit there at some point. Oh, yeah. It's really, it takes your breath away. It is so mm-hmm. incredibly beautiful. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that brings me to another question about how in your work and your gardening, um, you've, notice the effects of like global warming and like how are you dealing with that like this this fall has been very very warm yeah i mean that it's you know we all know that global warming and i would say population uh explosions are major a huge major concern for all of us right now um so that question puts is a, puts me in a kind of a quandary, right? Because I live in northern Vermont, <laughs> and for us, that warming, of course, it has some detriments for certain. But as far as my gardens go, it's been actually awesome because we have longer garden season. We have more warmth and more light. I mean, I was gardening in zone three on my mountain for like thirty years, and you know, with a little bit of warmer weather, I can actually garden in the with some of the zone four zone five plants wow. the, the heart so it's you know it's nice that it's november i know i'm right. not supposed to enjoy it and i know i'm like i kind of cringing even saying this but it's like oh i'm so happy to be able to go out and garden today you know i still yeah. have some plants i get to cut back and last week i mean it's all finished now we did get finally hard frost but i could go out and actually gather the last of my peppers and eggplants that's unheard of yeah yeah i know it's not good but it's also like um, but so the downside of it, um, which I know really what is your question about it is, well, one of the things, so we, in our, in our native habitat here, it's our snowfall that protects our plants and also creates a regeneration for our plants and for our people population too. You know, we need these long winters to, in order to have those short, busy summers that we have. And so up on the mountain where I used to live and where I, my heart still is, is um, when we don't have the snow cover, then w- those incredible gardens that we have up there, we have extensive gardens up there that we had planted. They're not as protected, you know, because mm-hmm. the snow cover is what you need. Thankfully, those gardens are high enough. They're up at around 
1800 feet. So they still get plenty of snow. Um, but yeah, in the hole, it's causing changes. You know, we're seeing more bugs. We definitely see more ticks. Yeah. I mean, the first 20 years we lived here, we didn't have any ticks, none, none at all. Not, mm. you know, but now it's, you know, I'm even when I'm, you know, every time I go out in the woods, I have to come back and do tick checks. And, yeah. 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 yeah we, we're, we're experiencing, I mean, we've only been here for two years, but apparently it used to be get down to like negative 30 here all the time and have like six feet of snow. And it's, I mean, like zone, zone four, you know, now we're definitely zone five. Um, maybe, you know, so it, it definitely varies like how it's changing. But one thing that I'm trying to do is like, uh, grow plants that from more further south, like persimmons and pawpaws and, and so on. But do, do, is that part of your strategy too? Is like to like help the plants move <laughs> north? Well, plants are you know the, the things that people oftentimes forget it forget when we talk about indigenous and native plants is that just depends how far you want to go back. Right. In England, yeah. Indigenous and native anything doesn't go past 10,000 years, which is a drop of time, really, you know, because we had glaciers here that completely changed the landscape. We went from mm -hmm. the highest mountain peaks, some of the highest in the world to like a mountains that are 4,000 feet tall, you know, they're really basically hills. So, um, and I think that it's really important to realize that and the plants have devised incredible mechanisms of travel, one being people, uh, and herbalists, right? Herbalists from the yeah. beginning of time have loved trading plants and trading information. Um, I, I get, you know, I, I definitely realize there is so much cultural appropriation that goes along, but we forget there was also a tremendous cultural appreciation about trading information and trading plant knowledge and, you know, exchanging. And I'm Sometimes I get worried that, you know, we're trying to be so mindful and careful that we're forgetting that, especially healers, you know, you didn't care whose side somebody was on, you were going to help. That's what you did, you know? Yes, and, exactly. Yeah. And so, but even without us, so if you take the whole people thing away, plants have already developed a mechanism. They're going to travel no matter what through bird poop and burrs and, you know, animals yeah. and just by wind dispersal and because they want to travel and some travel incredibly slowly but others travel fast you know and so um i forget what your question was <laughs> oh yeah about, about about plants migrating so yes but i think it's i think that that is part of our duty the plants are asking us they they like change like people do you know some faster some slower for where i'm living that change is not dramatic enough and mm -hmm. we moved actually from the mountains where it would have been hard to introduce any kind of warm weather plant because we're still high enough we don't get that minus 30 minus 40 degrees that we got but maybe just a few days every winter but it's still mighty cold up on the mountain but we moved to uh, a lakeside uh -huh. and the climate hasn't changed enough here and though we have warmer weather we have very freezing cold winds so a lot of those warm weather plants that you're speaking about wouldn't do well here. So um, I've not seen it make a big difference, but yes, I do want to say, I do think it's part of our, it's part of our job and experience, part of our mission, part of our service as herbalists to continue to trade seeds and plants and knowledge, you know, like our ancestors have done for centuries as far back in times. 
you know, and I think the maybe the underlining thing when we talk about cultural appreciation versus appropriation, it has to be done respectfully and mutually, you know. So I just think that that's maybe one of the things that we're forgetting is that there's very respectful and mutual ways. Every single elder I ever studied with, and as I said, all through my early years, uh, I had the great good fortune to study with some great native elders. I'm so fortunate, I realize that, but you know people like Wallace Black Elk and Bear Heart, Ocean of Fast Wolf and Rolling Thunder. I knew, I met and knew him and attended classes with him. Um, and also uh, um, some incredible Hawaiian elders who have passed away, Raylene Lancaster, I'm, always feel so apologetic. She has the most beautiful Hawaiian name, but I, I just have such a hard time wrapping my tongue around it. So I have to call her by her English name, mm. which she didn't ever mind, but I wished I could say it. I have just a hard time sometimes with English names. And Maku, who was another, probably the most reverent of Hawaiian elders, but all of them, every single one of them was generous with their teachings, you know, just, I mean, generous. And I think that, um, yeah, I think sometimes we're forgetting that aspect of generosity and respect. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of times, like it's very important to be respectful and culture, there is a thing, the culture appropriation is a thing, Absolutely. but sometimes the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater and stuff that is, cool. is actually respectful, um, is labeled, you know, appropriation and it, it ends up actually harming, you know, everyone. all everyone. Well, you know, one, one really um, incredible teaching I, I learned from Raylene. So Raylene was a, a respected, widely respected Hawaiian elder, and she taught um, cultural dances to all of the young children of Hawaiian children. And she also taught to non-white, to non-Hawaiians as well. And, you know, one, and I went over there many times to study with her, and she also worked with some of the groups I brought over. Um, working meaning she would do ceremony with us and teachings and stuff and I asked her one time just in a private conversation you know about how this felt to her as a Hawaiian you know having had the Hawaiian islands uh taken away from their people so disrespectfully you know even not even so many years ago and she said well the young people because you can feel that tension there you know when you're in Hawaii if you step if you step out of the tourist circle at all and even if you don't step out of it, you just stand on the land, you can feel this tremendous anger and tension that mm. isn't the volcano, it's actually the energy that's there, right? And so I was speaking mm. to her about that. And she said, um, she said, you know, the young people are very upset. Now she's talking in general terms, they're very angry. She said, they have every right to be, you know, so we see that in the young people, there's anger, they're the warriors. And, and that's how they get a lot of stuff done is through that energy that comes from being so pissed off. Boy, yeah, I remember, yeah. you know, I remember how that was. It, and, um, and, but she said, you know, but she said, they haven't learned yet that we're all one, you know, that love is really the answer. And that's, that I think was a teaching of the elders of all of these elders that I that I speak about. It's not that there aren't angry elders by any means, there are, but, um, and I definitely have my anger about what I see going on in the world and the planet right. and the disrespect of people. But, but we all are one basically, you know, like all different, absolutely respect our differences, but um, uh, there is a oneness, you know, and that oneness wants love and it wants respect, it wants honor, it wants care, it wants food, it wants shelter. You know, those things are basic in human nature. And 
And that's what I think were Makula and Raylene's and, um, you know, Sunbear and, and, you know, Wallace Black Elk and Ocean of Fastwolf and Rolling Thunder. I mean, they had this language that was universal all around the world. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm just sort of targeting certain people, but even I remember when we went, when I would work with my, one of my dearest friends and teachers, Rocia Alicorn, who's an amazing shaman mm. from South America. She's Ecuadorian and she's, um, she's Spanish Ecuadorian, but she worked incredibly closely for the last 30 or 40 years with the native peoples of the land and, you know, the indigenous people. And, you know, she would take our groups down into these remote villages and the elders were so incredibly honored to be able to share their teachings with somebody because nobody was listening to them anymore. And over the years, like we went down for over 20 years to some of these same people, these same tribes. And over the years, it awakened the interest of the young people because they would see that we were interested. So the elders began to have a respectful place in their communities again. Now I'm the first to say the reason that respectful place was diminished and demolished in the first place was because of the demol you know, the terrible things that went on with their cultures. But that's where the healings began again, you know, is that those people are, were being recognized and their young people began to listen to them again. So um, yeah, we're coming, maybe we're seeing the circle begin to heal. I don't know, you know, I'd like to believe that. Yeah, I think that message of unity and love and oneness is really so important in a time right now where people are so polarized and easy to take sides and pit people, us first them. You know, that really is a lesson of the plants and of the plant elders. And I appreciate you bringing that forth and highlighting that. Well, thank you. You know, and I think that if you spend enough time with the plants, that's what they teach us, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's maybe where I got that, you know? I, well, as I said, because I had the great good fortune to listen to elders when I was young, um, but also from the plants. I mean, they're not gonna tell, talk to us about, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, about going after, you know, and, you know, sometimes I feel like we live in the McCarthy era, we, you know, like <laughs> McCarthy's, it's like, no, yeah. no, no, let's not do that to each other. You know, we have so much to share and to learn from each other and try to sit in council with open hearts requires respectful listening. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so how do you experience the consciousness of plants? I mean, how do you not? <laughs> my question. I, I don't think it's possible not to, you know, uh, which is, you know, takes us back when you, we were talking about, you know, the plant people, you know, how, when you begin to work with plants, I mean, you could still be an ass and you can still be, you know, nasty <laughs> and all of that, but, yeah. but there is something, and you can be terribly opinionated, which I think all of us are, <laughs> Yeah. but something begins to transform in you and, and when you work with the plants and it brings out the best of who we are. Um, and that is because of plant consciousness, you know? And so, I mean, there are techniques that are taught and I've taught people, you know, like when you wanna learn to hear the plants or speak with plants, you know, there's, uh, there's a number of techniques and there's teachers who focus on that. I used to just have it be a part of my class classes, you know, when I would be teaching my apprentices and stuff, we'd spend a lot of time out in the gardens or in the meadows or in the woods with the plants. And you'd have people sitting with them and looking at them and drawing them and meditating with them and then revealing to themselves what they would hear. And it was always often 
times it was overwhelming for these people because it's like, oh my God, this plan has really revealed itself to me in the deepest way. Um, and so there are techniques that you can learn, but you know, really, I think it's just tuning in. Like, how do you listen to anything? How do you, how do you tune into the deepest place? You listen respectfully, you sing, you talk back, you know, you have relationship with them, you cultivate reverence, you know. So um, techniques are very helpful and techniques can get in the way <laughs> as well. But mostly I find because people are so disconnected from that way of being with each other, being with the plants, that oftentimes the techniques or the guidelines direct them and help them. And we do have some wonderful teachers these days who have done a lot to help people develop that conscious relationship with the plants. Yeah, mm -hmm. we actually interviewed Pam Montgomery. Yeah, I was just going to mention Pam. She does yes. a tremendous <laughs> job. And she studied with, I'm sure she mentioned, you know, her teacher, Stephen Buhner, who was mm -hmm. just a brilliant at, at that work, and Elliot Cowan. Um, so, you know, brilliant teachers for certain and books that they've written. All three of those people have written wonderful books on the subject, but you're gonna get it anyway. You know, if you're out with those plants a lot um, and you spend a lot of time with them, if you go vision questing with them, if you do a lot of backpacking, you, you tune into them as living beings, elders, you know, plants that have been on this planet longer than human beings that supply us, as I said before, with our medicine, our food, our shelter, our clothing, and the beauty way, you're going to just get it. You know, you just tumble into them. And also, I think there are also those sacred plant medicines that are way overabused and overused, but mm -hmm. they do have an amazing place for expanding people's consciousness beyond their skins, you know, mm -hmm. so step out of your the boundaries of who we are into the realms of other life beings is pretty profound. You only need to do it once or twice in your whole life and right. you, know, right. you get it. So, yeah, I've definitely felt like the few times that I've done those sorts of plant, you know, worked with those plants have been very powerful and very like have changed my life, but it's because I've only done them a few times at the right, you know, the right times that they've been so helpful but i've seen so many people like just fry their brains on overdo it yeah and overdo it too so <laughs> and there's also like the cultural like context of it too like there's a difference between like sitting in ceremony with elders who know these the spirits and like know how to work with the, mm -hmm. them you know and just like absolutely yeah going to a grateful dead show <laughs> Well, that could be a very spiritual experience too. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. 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 I had the good fortune actually um, when I, when I started the herb school in California, the woman who owned it's still at the same place. Her name is Nikki Scully and her husband, Rock Scully was the road manager at that time. This is back in the early 19, late 1970s, actually. Her husband, Rock Scully was the road manager for the Grateful Dead. He was the first road manager. Cool. So, Nikki introduced me to the Grateful Dead, right? <laughs> I never even knew who they were. You know, I was a, I was more of a homegrown hippie, you know, out in the woods. I didn't really listen to rock music and stuff. So it's like the Grateful Dead. Sure. I'll go to their concert. Who are they? What's <laughs> wow. Cool. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. In the scene. 
So um, just to bring it back to kind of some basics, I am curious how you just simply define what an herbalist is. Like, do you have to go through a certain amount of training or is it just like working with plants? Hmm. Well, my definition is very different than what most people think of herbalists. I just Uh think anybody who works and loves plants and is an herbalist and there you have different kinds of herbalists. You have medical herbalists who are working with usually human people, you know, people plant relationships, clinical herbalists who are uh, generally working in a clinical situation. You have farmers who are growing plants. They're doing some of the best healing work, right? Healing the plants. You have people who are making incredible cosmetics for people to put on their skin. That can be so healing for people, how they see themselves, how they feel. So, so that's one of the things, you know, like you can narrow what healing is, but what is that? You know, is it the pills you take? Is it allopathic medicine? Healing can be so many levels. So that's how it is with herbs to me you know, any aspect where you're working with plants is healing. Um, and so even the, the medicine maker who's, you know, really in tune with the medicine they're making, they're an herbal, they're more than usually an herbal manufacturer, you know, if they're really working with the plants, so they can be herbalists as well. And I, one time just out of the fun of that, I looked it up in the dictionary and the Webster dictionary, right? And it was defined by people who really work with plants. And then a second definition is, you know, medical, people who work with plants medicinally. So that Mm -hmm. is a subcategory. But as I said, medicine is a very broad term. Oftentimes it's not what you take. It's what people say to you. It's being out in the garden, you know? So it's for people who have dedicated their lives to plants and work with plants Mm -hmm. and see themselves as an herbalist. I think it's a self-claimed title. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. And so, you know, if you're a person that's looking for, Um, an herbalist to help you with your health concerns. So maybe you're looking for a medical or clinical herbalist. Do you have any, you know, insight or tips on what to look for? Cause there are so many different types of herbalists out there, but if you're trusting someone with your health, like who do, who do you know? How do you know if someone is um, experiencing for trustworthy? That's a really big question. I mean, one of them, I think one of the ways is through word of mouth, you know, word of mouth advertisement is the best. If you have friends, more than one, but friends who tell you ideally more than one, who say this person's really good, they really help me. I think that's helpful to know that, you know, and a really, a person, even if they're not well known for their work or they're young, um, if they're doing good work, they'll get well known, you know, their work will spread beyond them. And they don't have to do a lot of advertising. So you don't want to necessarily go for the person whose name you see advertised everywhere, because oftentimes, those people who are really good don't have to advertise. They just are. Yeah. So they're well known through word of mouth. Um, you can be a really good practitioner and not be older. You could not have a lot of experience. You could just be in your blood, but experience does help. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, the more experienced they are is helpful. It's not necessarily, you know, how many schools they went to or how much training they have because, you know, that doesn't always indicate like a, when you go to a doctor, you can go to a really bad doctor, right? But they could have tons of documents hanging on their wall. It doesn't necessarily right. make good. Um, but I mean, it could, but it's not a statement that that's what's a good doctor, right? Yeah. So 
um, it's a it's a statement that they've studied hard, and that's that's worthy, I think. But experience, like how long they've been in practice, can be helpful. Now that, that I've met some herbalists who have been in practice a very short time, but they just know they have a knowing and a sense. And so again, as, as I said, that's not going to limit. None of this is going to limit necessarily. But it's just things I would look for: how long they've been in practice, um, word of mouth, how well how highly people speak of them. When you go to a person is how, you know, you should be the one doing almost all the talking. So I would say how good they are at respectful listening. Like, so are they the ones asking the questions and you're doing all the talking? It should be like when you go to somebody, your practitioner should be good enough to know how to ask questions so that you are talking, right? Even if you're a shy, quiet person. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I would look for that, you know, say, you know, the if they are trying to impress you with a lot of knowledge, that's there's a problem there. They should never be impressing you with anything, right? Mm. Because that's not what you're there about. Um, and let's see, and then also, you know, is there, have they helped you? You know, like when you go home and you try what they're recommending, but again, that isn't always gonna be the case because sometimes it takes a while to tr trace what the foundational issues are and mm -hmm. especially yeah. with chronic illness, but you know, that you should have, you should leave with a sense that, um, you know, this, this has been helpful. This has felt good. Um, and that would be one thing I think more than anything is you can use your body as your, as your pendulum. You can use your body as your, you know, let your whole body be sensing how it feels to be there. And yeah. if you don't feel good being there or safe or whatever, and you leave with kind of, mm, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad practitioner or anything. It just means that your body is not resonating with that person. Right. And it is very important. You know, and I do want to say, I want to add one thing. I do know some people who have terrible bedside manners, who are <laughs> very excellent practitioners, you know, like, I don't like how they are, but they know what they're doing really well. So again, any of these things I just said are really like more like guidelines, you know, yeah. like, um, they just are ways I think that can help us find good practitioners, you know, really word of mouth is probably the very best thing. I think and that's all great advice. Yeah. 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 Especially the using your body as a pendulum. Cause like in yeah. your gut, you know, if someone's a good fit for you, cause like you said, they might be a great practitioner, but they might not be your practitioner. Yeah. I think that's so important. And then yeah. from the herbalist perspective, as somebody who is an herbalist, you know, and maybe trying to figure out their way in the world. Do you think that it's better to have a niche, like a specialty, or do you think it's better to be more of a generalist or does it kind of depend? I don't think there's any one way to go about it. I think you just have to follow your heart, you know, and do what is, what impassions you, you know, what is, what just brings the best of you forward, really. Hmm. Um, and, you know, like for me, I've always used the model. I grew up on a small dairy farm and you can never make a living on a small dairy farm, just selling milk or <laughs> yeah. you have to have this kind of got a lot of things in my basket. Right. So yeah. I always was very eclectic. I taught classes. I ran a little shop. I made products. I traveled and, you know, wrote books or whatever. And so, and I love that. I'm also a Sagittarian. So having a lot of distraction and kind of a chaotic life, I throw, I, it just is, I, you know, I don't like a lot of organization and order and 
uh, sensibility, honestly. So a lot of it's who you are. Other herbalists, like, you know, with Pam, I, I think about with Pam, she's really specialized. In, I mean, she's very eclectic as well, but her work is around that sacred plant teaching, you know, and she found that that really worked really well for her. And she developed a really big following because she even focused her teachings just on that. So a lot of it is, you know, what your passion is and then how you are. And so I don't think there is one way to go. Yeah. And I, I don't think, I mean, I've never followed like, and I'm not sure that I think it's the wisest way, but you know, what is, how should I do this that it's going to make it look successful? I think you have to follow what is in your heart and that's where success comes. And hopefully, you know, ho hopefully success on all levels, including, you know, livelihood you know that you can also earn a good livelihood I think that's important too yeah absolutely because like you said earlier you know herbalists often go into the field out of this intense love for both the plants and the humans and it's you know a really good um you know field to be in but they're not always the it's like making money is not always the most intuitive thing for herbalists. And it's kind of difficult to grapple with, you know, making money and being of service. So do you have any advice on that? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I know firsthand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, on lots of levels, you know, having grown up on, on a small dairy farm in the 1950s and 60s, when small dairy farms were basically being systematically put out of business. So no matter how hard people worked, they just weren't going to make it. It was designed to fail, you know, no matter how much, how impassioned they were by it. Right. Right. I mean, I still get angry and sad when I think about it. And certainly when I first started practicing as an herbalist and living my dream and my passion, you know, it took like 20 years before I even saw it, you know, anything that looked like a little bit like a profit. But thankfully, because of the scenario we live in now, people have an opportunity to earn a livelihood. And, you know, I always like to take that word making a living out of it because it's not about making a living. It's about living. And the ah, only yeah. way that you really live well is through self-care, right? And the only way that you can really care for others and service others is by taking care of yourself. And so it's really a cascade because if you're not taking care of yourself and living well, other people are going to have to take care of you. And so in our culture right now, because of the way that the world is set up here, and also because of the huge epidemic of opiates, so it's a combination of things, the society as a whole is having to take care of an enormous part of the population. And that's challenging for that, the, part, the part of the population that is having to do that. So that's where it comes into living well, taking care of self is incredibly important so that we can be of service to others. Um, I think generally in, in a healthy society, um, people don't mind taking care of, you want to serve those who are in need, but when there's greater need than there are community to take care of them, it becomes very challenging for people, right? And that's kind of what we're seeing is this tremendous imbalance in our culture so it is important for anybody who can take care of themselves and as are able to do that through good livelihood, you know, through serving, being served and serving the plants um, to be of service. You know, we need to do that. We need to step up for that. And it's, it's not difficult to do right now. You know, you have to be smart. And that's one of the things I would say, I think you were probably hinting at for a lot of herbalists. It's not just that 
it's not just that they have not a good relationship about taking self-care, right? Of taking care of themselves and earning a good livelihood. Um, it's so they don't know really how to do it. You know, we, you're much more interested in gardening than you are in bookkeeping. Yeah, I mean, for so sure. I think this is a lot of it. It's a lot. I mean, there are a lot of left brain people now who are going into herbalism and they, they really know how to balance a checkbook and all of that. I can't mm. do that even now. I never have balanced, honestly, truthfully. I'm not just saying that. I have never in my life balanced a checkbook because I'm very dyslexic with numbers. I'm yeah. just fortunate. And I also worked really, really, really hard. I love working hard. So, uh, and I had good helpers. So one of the things that I really would recommend for all of my buddies out there who are like me, where you don't have a good business mind, is you partner with a good, you take business classes. So that's one thing. You get comfortable with balancing checkbooks, looking at bank statements. You begin to understand how that works and you take some business classes or you partner with somebody who can help you with that. So, um, and then that shouldn't really be a problem because right now people are signing up for herb classes and herb walks and, and they are buying products and, you know, and so long as you're creative and you work hard and you're doing something really well, it will be well received. So I, you know, you could thank your elders for that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. <laughs> <laughs> and yet there's just, I find that there's so much interest in herbalism and herbal products. And one thing I love about the herbal community in my experience is that there's this like sense that there's room for everybody. And there's not this competition of like, oh, I don't want to be like selling in the same town as another herbalist, you know, like I think there's just room for everybody to make a living and, you know, to live in this lifestyle. So long as we continue to cultivate that support and creativity and use, you know, I would also mention this about competition. Competition can be a very supportive and creative endeavor. You mm-hmm, know, like yeah. when I see other people putting out all these home study courses, it should drive me to want to do better, right? Yeah. Not because I want to compete with them, but because I want to, I want to also have a really good product. If I'm the only person doing it, there's not much, I mean, you know, I have my own self inside of but I'm a little lazy these days. So mm-hmm. it can be, um, you know, you, you have to transform that in your own heart. You have to, you have to be, I am so glad those people are successful and they're driving me to be more, to be more successful as well, to do better at what I do. And so, but we have to foster that as a community. It's really important because it can shift really quickly if we don't. So yeah. I absolutely agree, agree that there is, so long as people are not just repeating the same, 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 which I don't see happening. I see so much creativity yeah. within the herbal community. So, so long as we are always reaching into that creative bucket, there's always more creativity available. You know, we never, it, there's never an end to creativity. It's always bubbling out of us. And so, so long as we continue to be more creative and re- you know, just not recreate the same old, 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 just keep making things, you know, giving different twists and new, new ideas to the formulas, then I think there's just endless room for growth and that we, it's our responsibility to cultivate that sense of there is enough for everybody. If we can't do that within our own community, it's, it's just dire for everybody, right? So we have to be able to continue to do that. But I agree. I think it's there. I don't think I don't think we should take it for granted. I think we have to really go. It, it does take some work to continue to have that sense of abundance. Yeah. Keep it fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Good. 
So, yeah, yeah, um, I'm curious if you'd be willing to share um, any of your tips for self-care or things that have been useful in your life. Mm. Well, it's changed over the years, you know, like when I was younger, my self-care routine was a lot of like, you know, I would slather my body with all my homemade creams and I would, and I still do that, but my self-care has a lot more to do with my heart. (laughs) And, um, you know, I still put my creams and lotions. I still make sure that I get a bath at least once a week. I'm very, I used to do more, but you know, I just usually on Sunday mornings, I, I go into my nice, beautiful old cast iron bath. It's not old. It's a new one, but I slither in that. So my routine, I would say my main care, self-care routines these days is just making sure I have enough time to get outdoors, mm. hike, be with the plants, be with the garden. Um, and that is really incredibly self-care for me. You know, the more I'm with nature, the more I feel whole. And I had some major tragedies in my life these last couple of years. Everybody has. I mean, I don't, I'm not alone in that, but I had the dear people in my life die and so I had to really really go deep and nourish and the flower essences which I've always used they became like my friends like sent me gallons <laughs> I had so many and I used them all you know I mean I I was like uh I wasn't using them drop by drop it was gulp by gulp really yep. and uh so the flower essences were extremely helpful and the bathing but just being in nature and then you know I think self-care comes also in just hanging out with people you really love, which has been hard to do with COVID, but yeah, I really love my husband. So I've been spending a lot of time with him these last two <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Right. Yeah. Just cultivating those close relationships, right? Right. Relations yeah. with the plants and the people that we love. So, yeah. Well, you've been very generous with your time and I, we both really appreciate it. Um, and in the interest of, you know, you getting back outside because it's a, such a big day. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you mind just asking, answering one last question and then we will, we can wrap it up. Okay. I'll do one more. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, just what do you see as the, the future of herbalism briefly? Like, Oh boy, that's a huge, big one. Um, I mentioned to you earlier, you know, I, I don't really look into the future a lot. You know, I'm, I'm more like, what are we doing today? You know, and what needs to get done today? But if I was projecting, if I was to say, what would be my wish for the future for herbalism? It would be that um, it, that we continue to usher it in as a people's medicine, which doesn't mean that it's not used by the medical world and that we don't have clinical herbalists. It just means that uh, we continue to bring it back to the people so that people know they can grow it and make their own medicine. It's really continuing the folkloric or community herbalism model that has been so important to me in all these years. Um, and that we really look a lot at cultural appreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't be mindful of cultural approach appropriation, absolutely. But look at how we can have respectful sharing and teaching and extend the circle hand in hand so that we are as awkward as it may feel for everybody while standing in one circle together and not having these isolated circles that I'm seen happening now. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not everybody's wish, but since you asked me, that would be my wish. Um, to, to continue to do work in service to the plants, which is to help them move along, you know, in their evolution, right? We are helping them do that. And that means sharing the information and sharing the seeds and, um, you know, just expanding together, you know. 
I guess my deepest, my deepest wish is that we continue to keep it a heart-centered, uh, to keep herbalism heart-centered, to have mm -hmm. it stem more from our hearts than our heads. Our heads are really useful and we share a lot of knowledge, but it needs to continue to come from our hearts, from the earth, through our bodies, through our hearts, you know, yeah. Yeah. That's anyway. beautiful. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful place to end our chat today. Um, and if people want to learn more about you and your work um, and your classes and your books, where where should they go? Yeah, so I have a, a website where I offer my home study course, The Science and Art of Herbalism. And uh, yeah, we have the old classic one where you can actually get that 500 page binder and Ooh. sit down there with all the photos and and then we have the more modern online one that has all the, it has the, it has the lessons, right? Um, the 10 lessons, but also has lots of videos and online forums and a community and all of that. And, um, and I still, we have actual people um, who are doing your homework. We have teachers. I have an incredible team of about 10 or 12 teachers who I've been working with for quite a number of years who do the homework. And then I still do everybody's lesson 10. I can't, I used to do all of them. I used to review everybody's homework, but we have, actually literally thousands of students worldwide, worldwide. So I still just do lesson tens. And yeah, it's a wonderful one-on-one -on -one kind of experience on, a, on an online and home study course. So yeah, you can go there and find out information. Right now we're offering a really great sale. So yeah. sale, so people can go online and get a big, big discount. Fabulous. So yeah, definitely check out the science or it's just scienceandartofherbalism.com. And thank you so, so much, Rosemary, for being here today. It was such a joy. Thank you. Thank you, both of you, for inviting me. It's been wonderful. And yeah, I hope it's thank useful you. to people. You never know, but I hope it is. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it will be. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right, honeys. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Good afternoon. I'm going to get outside. I love you both. Yeah. Enjoy <laughs> okay. it. Great person. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you.